turn to Revelation 1, and I'm going to break from the mold of what I normally do. I did jokingly say Calvin didn't even do this, and that is true. He did not preach on Revelation. Uh, he, he viewed it with a bit more maybe even respect than I do. Uh, I do know this is probably going to generate a little bit more curiosity on your part than some of the books. I imagine not all of you went digging into the end of Exodus because it was so intriguing to you. Uh, I imagine a number of you might do that on Revelation. I also know that the vast majority of the resources that are available are complete wacko nut jobs, And so I'm trying to prevent you from stumbling into that and being miserable. So three, one, more than conquerors, William Hendrickson. This is probably the easiest. It's the standard framework. This is the one that everybody appeals to for the system that I'm going to be putting forward for you. I can show you these later if you want to look afterwards, but I'm just hopefully helping some. Two, New Testament commentary by Simon Kistemacher, RTS professor. This is fantastic. This is readable and enjoyable. Um, Readable is the key, because the next one's not. Um, This is the New International Greek Testament Commentary on Revelation by Greg Beal. Um, This is easily the most interesting book I've read in a year. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Uh, They don't translate the Greek, so this is not an easy access book. But if you want everything you could imagine about Revelation to know, it's here. Um, This is a $75 book, so don't buy it without talking to me first, because you'll waste a lot of money. All right. Those are just, if you need resources, come talk to me. Don't just go hunting on the internet like, what does revelation mean? Please don't do that. Please don't do that. All right, revelation, this is God's word. Uh, I like to say this was written specifically to seven churches in the space of somewhere between 95, 96 uh, AD. We know exactly. But the beauty of how God writes this word is while he wrote it to them specifically, it's also written to you today. Good fun. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him in all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Lord, we always need your spirit to help when we read the word. Thank you for passages like this that remind us of exactly how frail we are. Give us humility, 
but give us understanding, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. All right, right, I want you to think about something. Remember it for me. Go back and remember the oldest family member that you've ever met or remember meeting. And by that I mean not that they were the oldest when you meet them. Like I'm talking the, the born the earliest year. So for me, it's my great-grandparents, uh, Mama and Daddy Hawk is what we call them. They're my father's maternal grandparents. And I like to think about, you know, thinking of books like this, I like to think about what would Mama and Daddy Hawk have been like if they were alive today and saw the technology of today. Right, so my uh, great-grandparents were tobacco farmers in Virginia. They were simple people, humble people, quiet people. I would love to have seen what Mama Hawk's response would have been the first time that somebody asked a question they couldn't think of, and they pulled out their phone and went, okay, Google, what is, and asked, and then the phone talked back. (laughs) I would love to have seen her face. I mean, she probably would have said it was the devil or something and (laughs) made us put it away, but... Oh, yeah, she's not wrong. Uh, or if, if, you know, maybe bought like a new, uh, what's it, Volkswagen Golf GTI or something and gone for a ride and take your hands off the steering wheel and watch her panic before she realized that the Golf GTI has sensors that measure the lines on both sides and the car in front of you and the car behind you so it can't actually wreck itself because it drives itself. Tesla does the same thing. I would love to have watched it. Or the one to me that is still magic to me is the wireless charging for your phones. I do not, that is magic. I do not understand it. It must be magic. Somebody found Merlin. They figured out how to pass electricity that way. I don't get it. Think about all the things that, you know, Jen, this is just my great grandparents. Like back up, think what it would have been like if Abraham. Actually, think about how bitter Noah would have been. Spending as long as he did building that boat and then to see, like, power equipment and chainsaws. How much would he have given for a chainsaw and an unlimited supply of gasoline? Now, think about, actually, think about if Noah had done that. If we transport him today and then we sent him back, how would he have tried to describe it? Because you realize, like, even my great-grandparents could not have described technology today prior to the arrival of Star Trek. I mean, they would not have had a category for my cell phone. That this thing that I can call and I can type on and I can ask it questions and I have no idea where I currently am or where I'm going, but it tells me where to drive. I mean, I'm going to be, some of you use GPS to get here this morning. Some of you have been members here for better part of a decade and still use your GPS to get here. <laughs> I think about Noah going back though and what it would have been like for him to try to explain what life today is like. I mean, the clothes that we wear. We have elastic. Yeah, I like elastic, right? The technology, the, we cut on lights. We have refrigeration. I mean, the, the going to the dentist. Not having to do it yourself with like a hammer and a nail. Can you imagine trying to explain life today? That's really, honestly, that's a large part of what happens to John here is he's given a vision of things that are totally different than what he's seen. And he's trying to figure out through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit 
how to get the churches to understand. He's trying to explain to them what he's seen. And in order for us to kind of wrap our minds around that, we've got to do a little bit of footwork to get us ready. First, we need to know where we are and what's going on. So we're going to rewind time all the way back to 95 A.D. We know the book of Revelation almost certainly was written between 95 and 96 A.D. We know this for a number of reasons, one of which is Irenaeus actually told us this is when it was written. And Irenaeus is a neat figure in church history because Irenaeus was discipled by a guy named Polycarp, coolest name in church history, who was discipled by a guy named John, like the Apostle John, like this John. So when when Irenaeus is talking about this, he's born, I think Irenaeus was born in like 110 or something, he's born not that long after and he's able to talk about the people who knew John directly. He's able to talk about the exact time and space that this was delivered in. And we know a lot about what happened in 95 and 96. First, we know that this is at the end of the reign of Emperor Domitian. Domitian is, um, by Rome's standards, a relatively good emperor. He did a couple of things, though, that were a bit unique and certainly noteworthy, which is why he's famous. One, he solidified power in the hands of the emperor and not in the hands of the Senate. In fact, actually, that's one of the best ways to tell who the emperor made angry is who killed him in the end. If it was the people, that's who he made angry. If it was his bodyguards, it means he was a total nutjob wacko. In this case, it was the Senate that killed him. He made them angry because he got too powerful, and so they killed him for it. One of the things that he did as part of getting to be powerful was to begin to equate the emperor with a god. So much so that his brother Titus, who went before him right after Titus died and Domitian became the emperor, he proclaimed Titus to be a god of Rome. Now, Domitian never was quite so brazen as to take that title himself, but a lot of the sycophants and the happy pleasers who wanted to be nice to him called him that consistently. It's well recorded all throughout church history. I mean, we have like pagan literature where everybody calls him, you know, the king of the gods, god of Rome or whatever. Flatterers loved it. We also know that at the end of Domitian's reign from a church historian named Eusebius, we also know that Christian persecution spiked. And you think about it, if you actually kind of rewind church history to think through it, there's a lot that happens between where we've read in the Gospels and in Acts and where we've gotten to in Revelation. You remember most of the Gospels, Acts, that era, you know, Jesus dies resurrected in the 30s. The books are written in the 50s and 60s. And now we're up into the 90s. And a number of things have happened. One, the persecution in Jerusalem originally increases right after the church starts which is one of God's great gifts because the Christians that are cowards suddenly are starving to death. And when being confronted between evangelism and starving to death, they will finally choose evangelism. And so they flee and evangelize basically the entire known world. Now, the good news is that persecution was largely located directly right around Jerusalem. And you had Christians all over the rest of the world that were by and large doing fine. And in fact, actually doing so fine that between, we'll say, 60 and 90, many Christians become quite wealthy. They've made a good amount of money, and the the empire has been largely stable for a lot of it. Between Domitian, Titus's brother, and then his father before him, it's been largely stable. And so we're looking at a time where people are by and large wealthy, and persecution is not yet bad. 
but you can see it coming. You can kind of get a whiff of it approaching. It's about to get really terrible. And a number of things are going to kind of come to a head in the next couple of years. One, the trade guilds that all of the merchants made their money through. If you were a merchant, which would be, I mean, that's the upper to middle class, the way you made your money, uh, you belonged to a a guild union. Uh, and uh, they did sacrifices before all of their events where they would actually sacrifice to the pagan gods. So to be a part of the union, you didn't just pay dues. You actually worship the false god together. It begins in this era, and you see the Christians initially are kind of waffling on it a little bit. And there's a reason why the church has grown big enough now that we have Christians in our midst that are no longer deeply and intimately committed. When they first became Christians, everybody came a Christian. It was a life or death matter. I mean, at the time, they just killed Jesus. They might kill you too. Nobody knew. But now you can be a Christian and you can be wealthy. You might just have to compromise a little. Maybe just a little. The second thing that's happening at this point in church history is, uh, by and large, when the Christianity first started, it was equated with Judaism in the public sphere. The Christians made their points of contact through the Jews, and they were treated as a sect of Judaism, all until 70 AD. At that point, the Jews got a little bit too rambunctious in Jerusalem. They ticked off the wrong Roman, and he sent the entire army of Roman and destroyed the temple, knocked it down. There's one wall standing. At that point, it becomes problematic to be a Jew, and suddenly the Jews and the Christians begin to distance themselves from each other. So this is where the era where we first begin to read, even in the pagans, we begin to read the difference between Jews and Christians being acknowledged even by Rome. Which is not a big deal, except for the fact that in Rome, it was on the books as law at this point, that religions, any religion was legal in the country that it started in, but nowhere else. So you could be a Christian in Jerusalem, and it'd be totally legal. And you could be a Christian in Rome, and it'd be a capital offense. And that's a little bit of a problem. Because remember, all of the wealth has been increasing, and so Christians have moved everywhere. And so you have the church covering the entire known world, and suddenly whiffs of persecution begin to show up. One of our church historians from his era, Pliny, he said, actually, this era is known because this is when we first begin to see massive waves of Christians recanting the faith. It begins to get hard, and the church doesn't entirely know what to do with it. They don't entirely know what to do with the persecution. It begins to get difficult. It begins to become a life and death issue. And this is really, it's going to stay bad from 95 really until 321-ish or so. This is when the church really has to decide what she's going to be. And it's in that situation that John is writing. He's an older man at this point. By that I mean quite old man. He's been exiled to an island uh, in the middle of the Mediterranean. He has a great amount of wisdom. He's been studying the scriptures. And now that he has a whiff that persecution is coming, he's given this vision by God. And so he writes a letter to the churches. And this letter is written specifically uh, with one great thing in mind. It is written to prepare the church for persecution. That is the entire goal of the book of Revelation, to prepare the church for persecution. So that the church is ready. 
And you think, well, Michael, that's kind of a weird thing to preach about. I mean, we don't really need to read that. And I go, mm, have you read the news lately? I mean, have you paid attention at anything that's happening in American society today? I mean, have you, have you paid attention at all? Where the truths that the church has stood on historically are becoming increasingly outcast and increasingly rejected by politicians. If you've paid attention to the news in the last 10 days, we've had two separate politicians say they intend to use federal law punitively against the church to punish us for holding the things that the church has historically held. Both of them running for presidential office. Yeah, I hate to break it to you, this is the story of our lives. I mean, we might not be quite as close as they were to persecution. I mean, they're like a couple of days away from it. I don't think we're a couple of days away from it, but it's not long until what I'm saying now becomes hate speech. I mean, it's not long. It's interesting here, though, is this opening salvo of what John does is he gives us his answer. He he frames out the entire book. What do we do with persecution? How do we handle persecution? What is it that we're supposed to do? And you're like, what? (laughs) I I didn't catch that when you read it. Well, there's a little bit going on here. And part of that is we have to actually back up for a second and understand what's happening in the book as a whole. At the very beginning, it explains to us, this is the revelation, it's the story of Jesus Christ, which God gave to Jesus to show to the angels, to give to John, to give to us. It is the holy, perfect, infallible telephone game. And, interestingly, it picks up the personality of most of those along the way, not the angels, But the thing that we do have to talk about the most is that it picks up the personality of John more than anything else. And it's intriguing because John has, just like our opening illustration of seeing something from the far distant future, he's trying to figure out how to articulate it to the churches in the land so that they're ready, so that they're prepared for persecution. The problem is, how on earth do you explain a cell phone to Noah? How how do you articulate the things that you've seen? And so what John does is he uses the entirety of the Old Testament. The problem here is that we are, by and large, most of us, reading this in English. And it does not show nearly as much in English as it does in the Greek. John is specifically writing a book where all of the categories that he uses, all of the images that he uses, all of the things that he's using are the Old Testament. We know, actually, it's beautiful. He's sometimes using Hebrew, where he's actually directly quoting the Hebrew, referencing it. Sometimes he's using the Septuagint, the Greek, which is really fun. He's going to do that here in just a minute. In fact, actually, to put this in perspective... Scholars disagree on how many allusions there are. A conservative guess there are 500 allusions to the Old Testament in this book. There are 404 verses in the book. If you do the math, that's more than an allusion pervert. I mean, he is articulating the Old Testament to you. It's interesting. Uh, His primary source is Ezekiel, which is great because we just did that in Bible study. His secondary source is Daniel, which all of chapter 1 is just a paraphrase of Daniel chapter 2, put in slightly different words. 
Uh, and then uh, he covers every book of the Old Testament except for about four, Ruth um, being one, I think Esther being another, but basically everything else in the Old Testament he's referencing. It's really funny. This is at its best. This is a brilliant Bible scholar as an old man explaining the Old Testament to you. It's not what I was expecting in Revelation. <laughs> The other thing that you have to understand, too, that's so interesting is a little bit about John's uh, personality. This is the beautiful thing about having so much from one man in the entirety of the scriptures. We know a lot about what John's personality is, don't we? John is, first and foremost, an artist. For those of you that are artists and you don't think kind of the logical, normal thought progression that many others think, you think in colors and you think in themes and you think in pictures and stories, Praise God for you. This is your fella. It's funny, out of all the stuff that John has written, not a single piece of it has a universally agreed upon outline for it. Literally, no no other author in the scriptures is so hotly contested over his ability to construct an outline. Paul, everybody agrees to the same outlines. Everybody knows. Luke, everybody agrees the same outlines. John, all bets are off. No idea. It's funny, some high-end scholars get to some of his writings, they're like, yeah, there's no outline at all. He's just writing off the top of his head, we have no idea. He is an artist, and his book is constructed that way. It's marvelous. It's really funny, like, uh, the name's Jesus Christ. He uses Jesus a certain number of times. He uses Christ a certain number of times, and if you multiply them together, Jesus Christ is the marriage of the two. It's really complex, uh, artistic, beautiful piece of literature. And then lastly is the whole point of what what he's doing here as he's offering them an explanation of how to survive uh, in persecution. It's really a polemic. It's an argument against Rome. All of the book of Revelation is kind of a refutation of Rome and an argument for how you're supposed to live in a fallen world. And again, that's something that absolutely fits us today. How do we not be so enamored with an America as much as being enamored with Jesus? That's a truth that absolutely um, fits us today. The problem, though, is we get to do this, and if you love reading this, I read this a ton when I was a kid, particularly when I was in trouble, because it was a way I could say I was reading my Bible and not find out what I had done to get me in trouble. Um, if you've read this book, you understand. It's hard to understand. It's why I don't want you to just go into the internet to go to, you know, troll all of the millions of websites on what Revelation teaches, because it's really hard to understand. Uh, in fact, actually, if you were in Sunday school, John's hermeneutic here, his interpretive framework is more complicated than any other place in Scripture. The nice thing is, if you read the King James, you know this. He gives you the key to it in the first verse. Problem is, the ESV butchers it, absolutely wrecks it. NASB absolutely wrecks it. NIV laughs at it and doesn't even come close to it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, so the Father gives this revelation to Jesus, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He, and your ESV, and I believe your NASB, and most of your translations will say, made it known by sending his angel. That is a butchery of the Greek. I don't know why they chose that. I'm sure they're very smart and holy men. It's not right. The problem is there's two verbs here, 
and they whiff the first and then have to fix it with the second. The first is, the way that the ESV takes it, made it known. That's not the actual verb. The verb is if you were going to take the noun, signs and wonders, symbols and pictures, and turn it into a verb. In fact, we know that's the exact word because John uses it aggressively. Every time in his gospel when he goes to talk about Jesus doing signs and miracles and wonders, when he uses the word signs, that's the word he's using. It's a picture of something else. That Jesus is doing a miracle, but what's the purpose of the miracle in the book of John? It's it's not the miracle. The purpose is to show he's God. It's a sign of something bigger. In fact, actually, we have John uses this word, this word now, I mean, sorry, this verb is used five times in the scriptures. John uses it three times. Each of those uses is specifically when Jesus is giving a sign for how he's going to die. When he says, I have to be lifted up and all the disciples around him freak out. And John says, because he was symbolizing to them the way he would die. That's how John uses it every time. So to translate it as he made it known goes against everything John himself has done. I'm going to put this a bit more crassly and kind of make it a bit clearer. A standard good practice for Scripture is to read it as literally as you possibly can until you can't. The problem is John has just told us not to. That's what that verb is. He says, Jesus signified all of this. He he symbolized all of this, and then he gave it to an angel to take it. You're going to see that matters a whole lot so that you're not an accidental non-Trinitarian heretic in about three verses. So here we have this polemic against Rome, this explanation of how Christians are supposed to endure persecution, how they're supposed to stand up in the midst of a world that hates them, and it's done in an artistic hand in the most spectacular series of colors and images and symbols and numbers that you can conceive of. That's why, in many ways, it's one of the most marvelous books in the scriptures, because it's it's the, the, the flip side of all of them. It's the backwards. It's the opposite. It's different. So we have to ask the question then. Okay, so so what does it look like? If if this is the polemic against the Rome, the pagan land around us, and this is equipping us to handle persecution, what is he going to say then in this crazy symbolic, you know, kind of signifying sort of way? Well, it's interesting. The first thing, by sending his angel to his servant John, Who, and John jumps straight into it with one of his most common themes, again, with the words that he uses all the way through, to bear witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Again, that bear witness, that's the word that we get martyr from, uh, but it is the idea of, of testifying, of proclaiming of this truth that we have to share it out to take a stand on it, to plant our flag in the sand. And it's intriguing to me that here he's dealing with a church that's about to be unbearably persecuted, that life is about to get very difficult for them. And you would think maybe the temptation would be to say, well, just compromise a little bit. 
Or to say, you know what, just you got to pick your battles. Or, or to say, well, you just you have to figure out how to be nice and winsome as you articulate the faith. And it's interesting, John's opening salvo is, you stand firm on the truth and nothing else. You stand on the testimony of Jesus and nothing else. And you know what the consequence of it is? Oh, look, verse 3, this is my favorite one to read because it's fulfilled literally every time I read it. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's exactly what I'm doing. Blessed are those who hear it. Hopefully that's what you're doing. Hopefully you're not, you know, off in la-la land somewhere else. And blessed are those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And this is another misreading that we've done so many times, is we think Revelation is a book about the end. And it's not. It's a book about the beginning. John's writing for... Churches that are about to undergo extreme persecution, which is why everything that he talks about time-wise, at least certainly in the beginning, is all about now. Because we're about to go through this terrible thing together. It's why it's right now. In fact, actually, verse 9, you're going to get to see the grammar of it. John explains to them that he's going to go through the tribulation with them. Because it begins right now. That's the grammar of it. It's all concerned about this, and it's interesting how all of our modern books, not all of them, I just gave you three that aren't this way, but many of our modern books are occupied with, oh, it's all about the end. No, it's not. It's about right now. It's about how you live in this exact moment. It's about the two steps in front of you. It's intriguing. Think about the scriptures. How much of the scriptures are built for the way, 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 way far future, and how much of them are built for two steps in front of you? It's always two steps in front of you. So we stand on this truth, this confession that Jesus is who he says he is. We stand on the word of God. We don't soften it. We don't kind of weasel out of it. We kind of try to keep our cowardice in check as much as we can. For John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, these are the ones. And here you have him putting into practice the very thing that he's just said. Grace and peace to you, your standard greeting of the time. From three people. First, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and is to come. The eternal being. Old Testament language, he is absolutely referencing it is God the Father. And if you skip to verse 5, you know you see exactly the second person of the Trinity from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. you got Colossians in there, the ruler of the kings on earth. That's Psalm 88. The interesting thing is in the middle, though, where he has this one where, again, when you read it, and it was why I love reading as a kid because I had no idea what I was talking about. I couldn't feel guilty about the evil things I had done and my need for Jesus. The seven spirits who are before his throne. And you're like, wow, what is that? Well, it's interesting. It's not, it's not actually that complicated. Every time that we see three persons mentioned together, father, son, and a whole, we all, categorically, we all ought to make it, well, it's the Holy Spirit. Well, then why does he describe it as seven spirits? Well, because he just told us. What's his mechanism for communicating truth in this? He's not going to use words as much as he's using images. As he's using pictures, he's using ideas. This is a trip through the art gallery. 
And this is through the Met or through one of the Louvre or one of the other you know, tremendous museums in the world. You get to see all of the beautiful art. Here you have us. He's taking us through that. And specifically here, he's calling back to us one of the great numbers from the Old Testament, the first one that's introduced as being important. Takes us all the way back to Genesis 1. The first number that's marked as a special number in the entirety of the scriptures. Seven. You go, how, how is that in Genesis 1? I don't, oh, the days of the week, that's right. Remember how those days are introduced and God says that he's fixed the time in the fullness of time and in the completion. It's, and it would be picked up all throughout Jewish literature as seven kind of being this emblem for completion for totality, for all of it. And here you have captured in this beautiful little portrait, a portrait of the Holy Spirit at work in the entirety of God's lands. The fullness of the Spirit's work who labors before the throne of God. And I love how he's hinting at here just what beautiful Trinitarian theology. God, the one who is, was, and is, and is to be. He is the sender. Jesus, firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings, he's the king over the earth. But where is he reigning right now? At the right hand of God the Father. Interestingly, who's the person of the Trinity that's still aggressively at work here right now? The one who's working before his throne. The one who's laboring in his people. The one who's here in us now. The seven spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. It is one spirit. He is a person. John's using illustrative language to capture our minds. Grace and peace to you, God's people from the triune God. And I love, he's not softening anything here. Here's a guy who, again, staring down the barrel of persecution. It's not like, eh, we'll just go fudgy on our, you know, our, our Trinitarian theology. We'll just get a little, it's fine. You don't need to know it. It's fine. Just major on the majors, minor on the minors, and God's not that important. No, he's, he's working out for us here. Very heady theology. And again, in these three things, he's already referenced three separate passages of Scripture just in those two verses. <laughs> You think, well, it's done with that at least. He's moving on to something a little easier for us. To this great doxology, to him who who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his, well, he goes straight to the gospel. That people are sinners that need to be saved and the only path to salvation is not good works. The only path to salvation is the blood of Christ. This is extremely challenging in the day in which it's being written. They loved multiculturalism. They loved tolerance within reason. And to make a truth claim that there is one God, well, that was near about the fastest way to get themselves killed. In fact, actually, from Eusebius and from Pliny, both from this era, we have records of Christian uh, senators and elite aristocrats that were executed for charges of atheism because they said there's one way to heaven, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Denying the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods, that's execution, dead. It is interesting, again, to think about how easy it would be for us if... 
If it goes the way it's gone every other time in church history, our persecution is going to start with our freedom of speech. The ability to say the words of Scripture, if that's where the persecution starts the way we would expect it to be, there will be a temptation for us to want to water down the gospel just a little. To say things like, well, I mean, I know Jesus is the way to heaven. Maybe there's others. No, there's not. John's, John is holding us to the line again. No, look, this is the one, the doxology, the blessing. It's to this God, the one who has redeemed, and to him alone. And the consequence of his salvation is fantastic. He's, he's made us a kingdom. Notice he's contrasting. We are a kingdom in opposition to the kingdom of Rome. You don't belong to that kingdom. That may be where your earthly citizenship is, but that's not where your home is. You don't belong to that. You belong to the kingdom of God. For us today, you don't belong to the kingdom of America. That's where my citizenship is. But that's not my ultimate citizenship. I'm a member first and foremost of the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what else happens around. That citizenship can never change. It can't be taken away from me. Throw me in prison. That still stays the same. This God and Father, we are his priests, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Again, that's a little nudge at the uh, theology of emperor worship that they had. And then verse 7, he goes back to Ezekiel. Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds. And again, remember, this is back to Ezekiel 1, 2, 3, 4, and other places in it. That idea of cloud is the glory cloud of God. It's not the white fluffy things that we had pour water on us last night. It is the glory cloud of God. Look, Jesus is coming with the glory cloud. And every eye will see him, even those that killed him and all of the tribes of the earth. That tribes of the earth is a reference to a different psalm, uh, but specifically refers to the pagans. All of them will wail because he will destroy them. Complete and total victory. You see, what he's challenging these Christians to remember is the end of, well, it's the middle of verse 5 where they put the paragraph break. That Jesus is still the king over earth. He's sovereign over all of our ways and all of our days. He is administering his kingdom perfectly. And no matter what happens with the pagan kingdom where you happen to reside, Jesus still reigns. You want to know how to withstand persecution. Thankfully, I I don't know what that feels like yet. I might in the future. Don't know yet. It's to hold the line on who God is. That's verse 8, that final verse that he gives. It's that profound statement of who God is. Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And again, is God actually the Alpha? Like when I write the letter, is he actually the letter that I write? No, of course not. It's a metaphor. We, we know this. He's using a literary device to say God is the first letter of the alphabet, and he's the last letter of the alphabet. It doesn't mean he's actually an A or a Z. It means that he's the beginning and the end. He is all-encompassing. He's infinite. This God is the one who reigns over creation, and he reigns over you, and he reigns over me. 
The big takeaway for this, for us right now, is actually supremely important. Because the solution he gives them is in essence a preoccupation with who God is. And I'm going to just lovingly suggest that's something that we need to be working very hard at. To have a preoccupation with who God is. I mean, we work really hard in our current culture to be preoccupied with our retirement or preoccupied with our job or preoccupied with our money or preoccupied with our pleasures or preoccupied with our luxuries. But the hill that we need to die on as a church is to be preoccupied with the triune God. Who he is. The plan of salvation that he has accomplished in Christ Jesus and the truth of that. And not cave, not be weak or wobbly, or let that creeping, creeping cowardice sneak in. That's why we pray to the Spirit for his help. But stand on that hill of who God is and what he's done. Again, I hate to say it, but I, I suspect it. By the time my kids are old, they're going to know this reality. I mean, we're already watching it happen in Europe, where Christianity has become anathema over there. You saw that Chick-fil-A tried to open a, a restaurant there. And I'm not saying Chick-fil-A is like the Christian chicken sandwich. I'm saying they tried to open a restaurant over there, and it made it eight days because they were boycotted so hard because their owner is a Christian. Eight days, they had to close in London. How does Chick-fil-A not survive in London? They have Nando's, and Chick-fil-A is way better. I don't understand. Oh, because they hate Christians. That's why. We have to be ready. And the solution is to be preemptively preoccupied with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, as difficult as it is. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, would we please, by the working of your spirit, be preoccupied with who Jesus is. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.